Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Yay! Okay, so we need headshots, right? Should we get headshots? I do need an... I mean, my headshot I took on my cell phone. Yeah, we need headshots for the website and for our IMDb. Where one of us poses uh, like back-to-back, arms arms crossed. Yeah, yeah, against a green screen, and then we put them together. Except we make me really short and you really tall. <laughs> or we could do like this, and you could hunch down or, you know, I don't know, something. I feel like after almost a year, it's time to get professional. There's a lot of people I've never met in person i've only met through zoom meetings Mm -hmm. and i found out one of them is five two wow (laughs) and i was like oh my god when we meet each other it's gonna be crazy (laughs) i get a funny thing when people only know me um over the phone which doesn't happen all that often these days but people would often say to me after they met me in person that i'm taller than i sound which is a weird thing. How does one sound tall? But <laughs> there's always a way. <laughs> okay, back to the Met Gala because that's important and, and super important. Well, also, hi, listener. Thanks for listening. <laughs> oh, yeah, you just caught us. Hey, listener, you just caught us right, right smack in the middle of just a normal conversation. But the Met Gala. So my central thesis is... This should have been a slam dunk with the theme, but they either didn't understand the theme or didn't care about the theme. Because the Gilded Age is a specific time frame, and you can just look up fashion from that time. Right. But I feel like there must have been so many um, stylists. I, I can just picture so many stylists out there being like, listen, we don't want to be too literal, so we have to interpret this and let's blah whatever right yeah because how else does this happen last time i checked marilyn monroe wasn't in the gilded age (laughs) (laughs) at least that dress was somewhat golden-y i mean the people who just straight up wore silver i get gilded age isn't about literally being gold but like silver yeah it ugh it's like, come on. Yeah. I, We're supposed to be, like, interested. I mean, I guess who really cares? <laughs> I know. I know. And as I'm watching it, I actually, I read a little because it was hard to avoid in all the esteemed journals like Daily Mail. But I definitely, at least on that day, I was feeling very, like, what the fuck? Who gives a fuck about fashion? But today, I'm feeling less like that. Today, I'm feeling more like, Molly Sims, why did you wear a prom dress from 1987? I mean, this is older, but I'll just never forget as a gay man how horrifically bad the celebrities were at the theme of camp. Yes, but I I think that one is a little bit harder. Oh, it's extremely hard. Yeah. But you've got somebody like Carly Kloss who posted an Instagram photo of like her eye and a hand mirror and it was like looking camp right in the eye and then she shows up in the ugliest most basic dress and it's just like no 
Yeah, that's weird. Just no. But you're right about the stylist. There, probably every single one of them was like, "We can't go literal." Yeah. Which, <laughs> Which is I mean... where Blake Lively with her Statue of Liberty interpretation dress. It's like she looks great. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's in the period. Like, you know, I'm here for that. That's fine. That's fine by me. But again, I mean, I'm just scrolling through Addison Ray. I don't know who you are because I'm old, but it's like a disco ball dress. It's just a haltered collar, neck. It's just, I, I mean, all of these outfits are beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but We're going to really have to put our money where our mouth is at the podcast red carpets. <laughs> totally. Oh, my gosh. I know. Who will we get as stylists? I'd be like, and tonight I'm wearing Target Massimo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, it's funny that you mentioned because I'm actually in the middle of, and I don't know if you picked up on this from the last time we recorded, I'm in the middle of a 30-day challenge where I wear the same dress every day for 30 days. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, they're not paying us, but I like this company a lot, Wool & Co., all of their stuff is made out of 100% merino wool, and it's just really cool. They have good stuff, but also, you know, it was Earth Month last month, and I'm trying this thing to raise awareness about fast fashion, la-di-da. So, I'm not doing that. I'm just a person who only has five shirts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's fighting fast fashion in a different way. Yeah. It's always hard to thrift, though. I guess shirts, like... I could find stuff, but, like, my inseam and with how tall I am, like, well, I guess it's hard to find stuff in regular stores, too. (laughs) Yeah. As a fellow person who's in the 99th percentile height-wise, thrifting is not easy. Everybody's like, oh, you should thrift. You should. I'm like, "Mm." it's just hard. I mean, there's not a lot there. Like, there might be one pair of shoes in a size 11, and they're, like hideous i do every once in a while strike it big at shoes with something like a nordstrom rack or Mm -hmm. a ross because Mm -hmm. like i'm in the clown sizes and so (laughs) like there will be men's fives and sixes and men's thirteens and all the other shoes are gone that's what you wear a size 13 Uh, honestly i wear a 14 yeah that's what my husband wears too and yeah it's you know it's like a little scavenger hunt in real life. But every once in a while, you can luck out because it's a less frequent shoe usage. <laughs> but yeah, um, I don't know. It's just kind of like, well, the fashion industry makes so much money. You need to dress these celebrities better, people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's weird. And I just feel like, are they going with their own gut or are, you know, they just feel like they have to take advice and there's a part of them that's like this is wrong i feel like a lot of them like don't even have a choice in what they're wearing yeah that's probably true their agents and their talent teams and but i have been seeing a lot of opinions about like marilyn monroe being a real person and i i just don't know i anything for clicks and anything for buzz but like the ripley's believe it or not museum giving kim k some of her hair and then the story that she slept in the bed with the hair in the container and it's just like i mean again maybe we don't have much room to talk because we spend so much time talking about real life crimes and things but it's just like 
but that's fucking weird. And we need to say, like, that's a fucked up thing to do. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Because, I mean, we talk about it sometimes on here. It's essentially murderbilia, kind of, I guess, depending your thoughts about Marilyn. But, I mean, it's in that same vein, whether she... Whether she uh, took her own life or was killed, it's just like a very morbid thing. And I don't know what it achieves other than, like you said, getting clicks for someone who doesn't actually even need to go to that length. I mean, Kim gets plenty of attention. Mm, Maybe we could do like a conspiracy cases month. Ooh, I like that idea. Where it is like Marilyn... I mean, I suppose we could even do Elvis if we wanted, even though i that's barely a conspiracy because he just, you know, passed away kind of sad. Well, <laughs> I mean, like, people do. Marilyn, JFK, I don't know. Just some of those big ones where it's like, what did happen? Because I've read about Marilyn and I do think it is a very questionable. Oh, yeah, agreed. Which is why I kind of said it as if, it was assumed that it was a murder because that's how I think of it in my mind. Yeah, I, I like I'm so certain it was not. <laughs> I, I mean, all the missing evidence, all the pill capsules with no liquid. Yeah. There's just a, a bit too much. Agreed. Yeah. But I like that idea. Ooh. Okay. But for the record, Elvis is not alive. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, yeah, that seems like a bit of wish fulfillment, you know. I don't remember if it was the Met Gala or something else, but I did see the photos of Priscilla Presley on the red carpet with the guy who's playing Elvis in the movie. And I was like, (laughs) there's something uncanny valley about that photo that was just like, no, this is a weird way to like promote a movie. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes... Life really is stranger than fiction. I mean, if you wrote that into a movie or a book, I don't think people would believe it. I agree. It's and, so and weird it, that you mentioned that. He sort of looks them. like Elvis, too. And it's just like, ugh. Yeah. I was just thinking about their family this morning, which is so random that you bring them up. And I don't, I don't know what sparked the thought, but just... I mean, that poor family, they've suffered so much. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We'll see. It's not a movie high up on my list. Oh, high up on my list. Yes. I don't remember if we talked about Severance or not, the TV show. We did really not. Really loved it. You, you watched the whole thing already? Yeah, I, I thought it was incredible. But then fast forward, this weekend... I or not this weekend across this week I finished the show Pashenko mm-hmm. and that is one of the best not just TV shows but like TV shows and or movies like the season one of Pashenko was one of the best like pieces of media I've ever seen really I haven't even heard of it it was absolutely incredible I cried every single episode and in fairness Oh, uh, we'll see. I could probably leave this in. Like, my grandma passed away, and then I watched this show, which is like a hundred years of a family's story. Oh, wow. 
and it's like multi-generational each episode shows different pieces in different timelines and it starts in korea Uh and like japan occupied korea so long ago and it follows all the way to this woman is a grandma living in japan uh closer to today so like in the 1980s and it is the acting the cinematography the story it is one of the most incredible things i've ever seen wow okay i'll put that on my list and you have to be able to pay attention i i suppose there's dubbing somewhere but like you have to watch it with subtitles and like the subtitles are different color for Korean and Japanese, and it talks about the horrible conditions for the Korean people in this time and the Korean people that immigrated to Japan under Japanese rule. And mm-hmm. it just sort of ended with like so many Koreans died in this time, and like the 600,000 Koreans that remained in Japan. And it's like talking about the women, and it was like these are the stories of some of them and like the last two words were just they endured Mm. oh my god it it, incredible but heavy yeah yeah it sounds a little like 100 years of solitude-esque kind of yes but focused on the women and oh my god it's incredible okay i'll put it on my list for i kind of not i mean i saw severance and i was on the fence I really like him, although I just, my brain is not working. I cannot think of his name. You know who I mean. The actor or the, like, co-creator? The actor. Uh, Adam Scott. Yes, thank you. Um, I like him so much. I've liked him in everything, but it just, it looks heavy. My husband's asked me, like, three times, you want to watch this? I'm like, not, not, not tonight, not tonight. Um, That one is at least... It's, like, heavy philosophically, Mm -hmm. where something like Pachinko is, like, heavy, but also cathartic. Got it. (laughs) Like, heavy emotionally. Right. Interesting. Okay. I mean, my list is just growing. I can't keep up. Yeah. It's just one of those things where probably, I think, right time and not wrong time to have watched it, because I went into it pretty unaware. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was just, I cried every episode, and I felt good about that. (laughs) Wow. Well, I mean, sometimes that's exactly what you need. Well, and it's the power of media and storytelling, and kind of in this episode slash next week's episode, too, it's like, we'll get in a little bit into the pop culture Mm myth-making. Mm-hmm. And what that means in, like, pop culture even as propaganda- yeah, so interesting. Yeah. Storytelling. I freaking love it. <laughs> I know, I know. <sighs> well, speaking of which, should we tell some stories to our listeners? <laughs> we should. Thank you for pulling the weight on that one. I'm just, I'm tired. It's been a week. But I'm, I'm here. I'm with it. I am down for our topic today. <laughs> Well, I guess this week I'm going to kick us off with a little bit of a history lesson. Mm -hmm. So the story of today's episode takes us all the way back to the Old West. So I wanted to take a few minutes to set the scene 
the legends, historical events, and folklore have embedded themselves into U.S. culture. And, you know, we've kind of used that as an export as well. Mm -hmm. Most of us have probably seen or at least heard of old Western movies with actors like John Wayne, who that's its own thing. There's a lot of negatives, I could say, but was still a staple of American pop culture. So this genre of media was so prolific, helping this time period become one of the defining periods of American national identity. So the concept of the Old West or the Wild West includes the geography, history, folklore, and culture in the forward wave of American expansion into North America. And technically that began as early as the European colonizers in the 17th century. Mm. And that expansion ended with the admission of the last few Western territories as states in 1912, which excludes Alaska, which you know, didn't get statehood until 59. Right. So this era saw massive migration and settlement across the American West, which was pushed by then-President Thomas Jefferson after the Louisiana Purchase from France. And so this gave rise to an expansionist attitude across the country, which went hand-in-hand with two philosophies. So the first is Manifest Destiny, which was a widely held cultural belief in the 19th century USA that settlers were destined to expand across North America. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get into it. But (laughs) there were three basic themes to Manifest Destiny. The special virtues of the American people and their institutions. The mission of the United States to redeem and remake the West in the image of the agrarian East. And an irresistible destiny to accomplish this essential duty. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh, already. So the other guiding philosophy came a few decades later, but still, you know, creating this period, which was the frontier thesis. And that was an argument advanced by historian Frederick Jackson Turner in 1893, that a settler colonial exceptionalism under the guise of American democracy was formed by appropriation of the rugged American frontier. Mm. So... Sort of getting into that, he stressed the process of, quote, winning a wilderness. Mm -hmm. So that process to extend the frontier line further for U.S. colonialization and the impact this had on pioneer culture and character. So in essence, according to this essentially atrocious theory, if you're being slightly kinder, audacious theory, Mm. indigenous land possessed a quote, American ingenuity, and that settlers are compelled to forcibly appropriate and create cultural identity that differs from their European ancestors. So this text was right in line with the framework of Manifest Destiny, which was established a couple decades earlier. And I think it's extremely clear to see why these fucked up philosophies so easily led to the annihilation of the Native Americans, as well as justification for it. Yeah. Along with things like the Mexican-American War and annihilation of so many Mexican folks as well. Like, it's just not surprising at all how these old Westerns, these movies, the staple of American pop culture, vilified Native Americans, helping spread that message in these somewhat insidious ways that only pop culture can. Yeah. So 
I felt like we couldn't dive into this without a bit of that information as well. Like, old Western films are propaganda. Yeah, thousand percent. I mean, and a lot of a lot of films. Yeah. Probably, yeah. But very successfully so. I mean, the settlers are always the heroes. The natives are always... I mean, I hate to even use the word. I say this uh, surrounded by quotation marks of yeah. savages. Ugh. It's just... And it's a mainstay of American pop culture for decades. Yeah. So all of that said... This sort of archetypal Old West period is generally accepted by historians to have occurred between the end of the Civil War in 1865 and until the closing of the frontier by the Census Bureau in 1890. And that was when the Census, the Census Bureau released a bulletin that read, quote, Up to and including 1880, the country had a frontier of settlement. But at present, the unsettled area has been so broken into by isolated bodies of settlement that there can hardly be said to be a frontier line. In the discussion of its extent, its westward movement, etc., it cannot, therefore, any longer have a place on the census reports. End quote. Mm. So the frontier was gone. Yeah. That's so disgusting and disturbing. And I feel like not widely recognized you know, yeah. I mean, we talk about the propaganda mach- machine that the Nazis had and the films that they made. And we talk about it in a lot of other contexts. But looking at the one that existed here and for so long, it's crazy. And I think this is why so many conservatives are fighting history mm-hmm. right now, because I added a couple more quotes from this Turner guy. Mm-hmm. Um Like one talking about the frontier itself, he argued, quote, the frontier promoted the formation of a composite nationality for the American people, Mm -hmm. end quote. He also talked about the process and development of the frontier, saying, quote, this perennial rebirth, this fluidity of American life, this expansion westward furnishes the forces dominating American character, Mm. end quote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can't say this migration this movement was the creation of american culture and character Mm -hmm. while simultaneously saying genocide wasn't that bad and that wasn't a big piece of our history and helped shape the foundations of all of our systems Mm -hmm. and of course like this is not even getting into slavery and all of those pieces but yeah it's just you can't talk about this time period and ignore right. the implications. And I mean, we're talking about movies, but also, I mean, it started way before that with stories and novels, you know, the stuff of every kind of junior high American lit class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And so uh, another interesting piece of this that I didn't really understand was that there were multiple American frontiers, mm-hmm. which of course makes sense because you mm-hmm. have from like Missouri all the way to California, like that couldn't have been one monolith. Right. But the enormous popular attention was focused on the Western United States, especially the Southwest throughout the 19th century and the early 20th. And 
media typically exaggerated the romance, anarchy, and chaotic violence of this period for greater dramatic effect. And it inspired the Western film genre of film, along with TV shows, novels, comic books, video games, children's toys, costumes, which we'll get into uh, next week. But I found this quote from the book, The American West, A New Interpretive History, that I wanted to read. It's, quote, Frontier history tells the story of the creation and defense of communities, the use of the land, the development of markets, and the formation of states. It's a tale of conquest, but also one of survival, persistence, and the merging of peoples and cultures that gave birth and continuing life to America. End quote. So through treaties with foreign nations and native tribes, which those treaties do exist, but incredibly one-sided... <laughs> Well, yeah, Um, I mean, and it's like, you know, you wouldn't accept a will that had been signed with a gun pointed to someone's head. And -hmm. that's essentially what those treaties are. It's a legal document that people signed, you know, without real agency or freedom to decline. I mean, even like the Louisiana Purchase is France selling Britain all of this land that doesn't belong to either of them right right yeah it's crazy but yeah so that plus political compromise military conquest the establishment of american law building of farms ranches towns marking of trails digging mines and pulling in of great migrations of foreigners the united states expanded from coast to coast fulfilling this ideology of manifest destiny for better Mm -hmm. or for worse Mm mm-hmm Going back to Turner, he theorized that the frontier was a process that transformed Europeans into a new people. The Americans, whose values focused on laughably, he said, equality. Like, mm-hmm. e- even in the white people, it was still only equality for men. Right, right. <laughs> um, democracy and optimism, as well as individualism, self-reliance, and violence, which uh, that feels pretty correct to the American people of today. Yeah. With many of them still fighting equality, like equality for the white straight man at this point. But yeah. Yeah. And of course, like I said, that all means it's a great place for white male Americans. (laughs) (laughs) A theme that continues. And so as the frontier passed into history, the myths of the West and fiction and film took a firm hold on the imaginations of Americans and foreigners alike. Mm-hmm. But what was it really like for the people living there? Was it saloons, gunslingers, bar fights, straight shooting sheriffs and train robberies? And unsurprisingly, the answer's a lot more complicated than I realized. And the short of it, that it it just depends on where you lived. Mm. So for our foreign listeners, if you haven't been to the United States, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. Like, a lot of folks, it's hard to comprehend the scope of the United States. Yeah. Uh, but as anyone who's ever road tripped from east to west coast, it is massive. And so in areas where resources that folks were kind of in need of, so like needed resources, such as land for cattle grazing, people were a lot more likely to come up with nonviolent arrangements. Mm. So 
According to Terry Anderson, Professor Emeritus of Economics at Montana State University and co-author of The Not-So-Wild Wild West, Property Rights on the Frontier, quote, The Hollywood version shows anyone and everyone fighting over water rights and land. But what we discovered is that, in reality, people understood the negative consequences of fighting and instead found civil ways to resolve their disputes. End quote. So cattle owners would divide up extensive plots of land. They formed associations to document and assign range rights. But even in peaceful areas, like think of the old game Oregon Trail, like disease, drought, isolation, desperation, that was still very much a real part of daily life. But when we look at areas where the resources in question were rarer and more valuable, i.e. precious metals like gold, it's a very different story. Crime rates went way up. Mm -hmm. So not just like in areas with things like gold versus cattle, like comparing the crime rates of areas with like precious metal mines on the settled air quote East Coast Mm -hmm. versus the West, huge crime differences. Hmm. I guess I didn't put any of the numbers. I figured that might be boring, but really big yeah. increases in crime when there's so like interesting valuable precious metals at hand which makes sense yeah and life could be downright dangerous people were much more likely to turn to violence to get their way and that violence leads to some of the real stories from the old west which might not tell the whole story but that doesn't mean it's not a true story mm-hmm uh, much like the one that Kirsten's going to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. And, you know, I think that so much is talked about the genesis of how life was then. But, uh, you know, I think your background really touches on that next deeper level of what led to this, the the real foundations of this time. And to tell our story today, we're going to focus kind of on one particular story within all of the stories because it's fairly well known, but there are parts of it that I think are still surprising and it just feels really relevant even after all of these years. So today we're going to talk about Billy the Kid and there was a lot in the research that surprised me, um, Mm -hmm. starting with the fact that his name wasn't William at all. The person who became known as Billy the Kid was baptized as Patrick Henry McCarthy. And he wasn't from the West originally or even the Midwest. He wasn't from the frontier at all. He was born in Manhattan. And there's some dispute over the year, but generally people put the date at some time in the fall of 1859. Now, the story is somewhat typical of life in the 1800s. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of tuberculosis. And in his youth, he experienced a lot of both. So his father died when he was still very young. After his father died, his mother, Catherine McCarty, moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, with her family. While she was there, she met William Henry Harrison Antrim. And they formed a little family unit and moved all together to Wichita, Kansas. Now, this is in 1870, so Billy the Kid was just about 11 at this time. After they moved, Catherine married William, and 
they moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, which was a territory still at that time, not a state. At that time, his brother, Joseph McCarty, began using the name Joseph Antrim, and they lived for a time there as as a cohesive family unit. So shortly after their move to the New Mexico Territory, Billy's mother, Catherine, also died of tuberculosis. This is 1874. And after her death, William Antrim, who for a period of several years had been their father figure, abandoned the McCarty boys and left them as orphans, which again, not super uncommon at that time in that area or really anywhere in the U.S. So Patrick McCarthy or Billy the Kid was only 15 when his mom died and he at that point moved into a boarding house. So he was, you know, old enough in those days to essentially start working and take care of himself He was caught, you know, doing petty crimes, stealing food, robbing, but some things that kind of hinted at more serious crimes to come. He stole some pistols and he was charged with theft and he went to jail for a little while. But two days after that arrest, he escaped and became a fugitive. While he was a fugitive, he located his stepfather, William Antrim, and stayed with him for an unknown, undisclosed period of time. But during that time, he stole clothes and guns from him as well, and Antrim eventually kicked him out, and that was the last time he saw him. So at this point, Billy the Kid is essentially on his own. He traveled to the Arizona Territory and worked as a ranch hand. He gambled and went to gaming houses. He was basically an itinerant worker at this point. He met up with a man named John R. Mackey, who was a Scottish-born criminal who had been in the U.S. Cavalry, and they kind of buddied up and began what would have been at that time much more serious crimes, which was stealing horses. He became known around that time as Kid Antrim because he was young, he was slight, he looked even younger than he was. It wasn't until 1877 that Billy the Kid committed his first really serious crime. He was at a saloon and he got into an argument with a blacksmith who was known as Francis Cahill, AKA Wendy. And they got into an argument. Wendy called him some names and Wendy then threw Billy the Kid onto the floor Billy grabbed a a gun and shot Cahill, and he died the next day. So this represents kind of the shift from petty, kind of youthful crimes, even though at that time, again, horse stealing would have been a very serious offense, to kind of the next level of murder. Mm. He then officially became a real wanted fugitive that was wanted all throughout the land. He fled Arizona Territory back to New Mexico Territory, but some members of an Apache tribe took the horse that he was using from him and left him essentially to walk all the way to Fort Stanton. So having to walk many, many miles in the heat of the Southwest, 
Billy eventually arrived at a friend's home, but he was starving and near death. The friend's mother nursed him back to health, and he then went on to a former army post where he joined another band of rustlers and herd raiders um, and started stealing cattle, which, again, depending on where you were at that time, could be a crime punishable by death. He was spotted with this gang, and he was then mentioned in a local newspaper. It was around this time, even though I've been calling him Billy or Billy the Kid this whole time, it was around this time in 1877 that he started referring to himself as William H. Bonney, and that's when the nickname Billy the Kid started being used. After returning to New Mexico, Billy the Kid worked again as a ranch hand, this time for an English businessman named John Henry Tunstall. And during this time, he got embroiled in essentially a conflict between two different kind of ranching gangs. So Tunstall was very influential. There was another group that had a lot of economic and political power because of a beef contract with nearby Fort Stanton. In 1878, the two groups clashed and... Tunstall put Bonnie, or Billy the Kid, in charge of horses and told him to relocate them. At the same time, the sheriff, who probably was corrupt, assembled a big posse to come and seize the cattle. When Tunstall learned of the posse, he went out to intervene, and during this conflict, someone in the posse shot Tunstall and killed him. This murder ignited a more bloody conflict between these kind of two gangs. And this conflict became known eventually as the Lincoln County War. So after Tunstall was killed, Billy the Kid and a man named Dick Brewer swore affidavits against Brady and the people in the posse, um, and they obtained murder warrants. Mm -hmm. Um, They went to arrest this other man for the murder. They arrested them, released... Billy the Kid, and then Billy the Kid joined something called the Lincoln County Regulators, uh, which was kind of a another posse, I guess. Again, this is the lawless Wild West. They captured two men named Frank Baker and William Morton, and they were both accused of killing Tunstall. The Regulators later ambushed deputies. Essentially, there was just a lot of back and forth fighting. There was a shootout. Billy the Kid was injured, others were killed, and warrants were issued on both sides. All of this culminated in something now known as Battle of Lincoln. In July of 1878, the two sides came together in a large conflict that resulted in multiple casualties. Um, Billy the Kid managed to survive this conflict. After the battle, he and three other survivors were near an Indian agency when another murder occurred. He and the other three men were all indicted for murder, even though there was conflicting evidence that someone else had been responsible for the killing. All of the indictments except the one against Billy the Kid were, what's it called when an indictment is canceled? I mean, I guess we would say dropped. Yeah, were dropped. Okay. Um, Except the one against Billy the Kid. The territorial governor, who was a former Union Army general, 
came in in October of 1878 and had warrants for several men, including, quote, William H. Antrim, alias The Kid, alias Bonnie. But he was unable to execute them because basically shit was cray. He then issued an amnesty proclamation, which pardoned anyone involved in the Lincoln County War. And it specifically excluded persons who had been convicted or indicted for a crime. And therefore, it excluded Billy the Kid because of his previous criminal record. Over the next year, Billy the Kid was arrested and escaped and was basically in trouble with the law, but also, in some instances, kind of fairly unfairly accused. He was crime adjacent, and so he was then included in warrants. But in 1880, he again murdered another of his victims, a man named Joe Grant, who was a newcomer to the area in New Mexico. This was picked up in the media and, again, referencing the kid, or Billy the Kid. His reputation circulated. Posses were issued to find him and capture him and kill him if needed. A few weeks after that murder, Billy, with the posse that he was riding with at that time, went into Fort Sumner But he didn't know, and his companions didn't know, that there was a posse waiting for them. There was a clash. Shots were exchanged. One person in his posse was killed, but the rest of them escaped without any harm. Finally, at the end of 1880, the governor posted a huge bounty for Billy the Kid's capture, $500 at the time. And Pat Garrett, a known sheriff, was pretty much on a mission to catch him. Ten days after the governor had posted that bounty, Sheriff Garrett and his posse captured Billy the Kid, along with others in his gang. The prisoners were shackled and taken to Fort Sumner, and then later to Las Vegas, New Mexico. When they arrived into town, there were lots of basically um, villagers with pitchforks. And looky-loos, you know, he had gained Mm -hmm. a lot of notoriety by this time. The following day, the mob returned, and this time they were armed, and they demanded that the sheriff turn over, not Billy, a different fugitive. And the sheriff refused, and they came to an agreement that a couple of people from the mob would accompany them on the train. And later, and I think this is really telling, in an interview with the Las Vegas Gazette, they had a quote from Billy the Kid responding to a question whether he was nervous or, you know, feared for his life during the confrontation the the day after his capture. And he said, quote, what's the use of looking on the gloomy side of everything? The laugh's on me this time, end quote. And I mean, that just kind of screams sociopath, right? It's like, not afraid, no feeling of fear. Yeah, it's also like, like, I'm not dumb, I understand there have been newspapers, but to think of a quote from him in a newspaper is just like, what? I know, right? (laughs) I know. Well, yeah, I mean, you'll get to this later, but he has kind of become more of a myth than a historical figure in many ways. After he arrived in Santa Fe, he sought clemency from the governor. The governor refused to intervene, and... He went to trial in April 1881. After two days of testimony, he was found guilty of Sheriff Brady's murder. And 
incidentally, it was the only conviction secured against any of the people who fought in Lincoln County War. Later that month, he was sentenced to hang, and his execution was scheduled for May 13, 1881. Now, it's legend that when he was sentenced, the judge told Billy the Kid that he was going to hang until he was, quote, dead, dead, dead. And Billy the Kid supposedly responded, you can go to hell, hell, hell. Um, <laughs> there's not a lot of historical evidence to support that, but, you know, it makes a nice scene in a movie. Now, following his sentencing, he was moved to another town and he was held under guard on the top floor of the town courthouse. Somewhat inexplicably, given his ability to escape custody, one of the deputies took all of the other prisoners in the jail across the street for a meal and left another deputy alone with Billy the Kid at the jail. And he asked to be taken outside to use the outhouse, and the deputy took him. And as they were walking up, he essentially did a little sleight of hand. He hit around a blind corner, got his handcuffs off, beat the deputy with the loose end of the handcuffs, and then during the scuffle got a hold of his gun and shot him. So he managed to escape and got a loaded shotgun in the process. He was able to get out of his leg irons with an axe and he stole a horse and he was able to get out of town before anyone could capture him. The governor again placed another $500 bounty on his head and about three months later, he was recaptured. It's like weird to think about somebody escaping so many times until you remember like the Ted Bundys out there. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, yeah, but this was the 1800s. Like escaping would have been so much easier then. But even still, it's like, gosh, how do you escape so many times? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Now, there are different versions of how it went down when he was captured. The most reliable say that Sheriff Garrett got wind of rumors that Billy the Kid was in the vicinity of Fort Sumner. He went with two deputies to question a resident there who was a friend of Billy the Kid's. One night, as they sat with this friend in a darkened bedroom, which seems a weird thing to do, but okay... Billy the Kid unexpectedly entered the bedroom. And some say that he didn't recognize Garrett because it was dark. He drew his revolver, backed away, and said in Spanish, who is it, who is it? Once Garrett heard Billy the Kid's voice, he pulled his gun and shot him twice. Again, stories vary whether he died instantly or took some time to die. A lot of this has just become lore and legend. But within a few hours, the local justice of the peace had assembled a coroner's jury. They took statements. They brought his body in to be examined. And a jury of six people certified that the body was indeed the body of Patrick McCarthy, a.k.a. Billy the Kid. And according to a local newspaper, the jury foreman said, quote, It was the kid's body that we examined, end quote. Billy the Kid was given a wake by candlelight, and he was buried the next day. His grave at the time was just noted with a wooden marker. Now, about a week later, 
Garrett traveled to Santa Fe to collect the $500 reward offered by the governor, and the acting governor at that time, William Rich, refused to pay the reward. Over the next few weeks, the residents of Las Vegas, Mesilla, Santa Fe, White Oaks, and other New Mexico cities raised over $7,000 in reward money for the sheriff. And a year later, the New Mexico Territorial Legislature passed a special act to grant Garrett the $500 bounty reward promised by Governor Wallace. Some people, though, had started to claim that Garrett unfairly ambushed Billy the Kid, and he felt the need to tell his side of the story, so he called up a friend of his, who happened to be a journalist, to ghostwrite a book for him. The book was called The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, and that was published in April 1882, but it only saw a few copies sold, and it really became more of a reference for later historians who wrote about Billy the Kid's life. So it's fascinating how, I hate to say little, (laughs) but like his notoriety versus Mm. his real life story, it's fascinating. Right. Yeah. There's not a lot to it. And honestly, some of it seems like maybe bullshit. I mean, I'm not saying that he never did any bad things, but, you know, is the thing that he was tried and convicted of something that he did? And was it something that he did that was different from what other people were also doing and never charged for? Well, and I read through this, but I didn't put it in my notes for the next part but i think in the 2000s the governor of new mexico was considering a pardon for him mm-hmm. yeah because yeah. because of the ambiguity of like well mm-hmm. how much crimes were real what can be proven i mean eventually that didn't happen like he left office without pardoning him but it was part of the cultural conversation about well who was he really and i'll get into it too but There's, like, two versions of him and Mm -hmm. the fictionized form of, like, young hero vigilante and, like, wizened sociopath mercenary. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. And, you know, it's one of those that, given so much time and the lack of historic evidence, you know, may never be known. Yeah. Not fully. Yeah. Uh, Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So in the next episode. We have a lot more. Yeah, we're going to dive into a lot of culture. (laughs) And I'm excited to tell you about it. I guess a little cliffhanger. It's somewhere in my notes, but Mm. to go out on a high, Billy the Kid has the most (laughs) movies in history. For a single person. What? Uh-huh. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's where I was like, gosh, the story is so relatively small. Like, more right. movies have been made about him than any individual in history. That is mind-blowing. Like, I'm literally mind-blown. So, yeah. Tune in next week, and we're going to dive deep, deep into this culture. Woo! Okay, well, as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Ding, ding, ding. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 